Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. The confusion stops here. On today's program, I'm going to be uh, sharing the best-kept secret of Vatican II. Today is also the feast day of St. Pius of Pietrelcina, a.k.a. Padre Pio. Uh, Padre Pio, a modern saint, a 20th century saint, and, and mystic, and miracle worker. And his advice to us was pray, hope, and don't worry. And I found an item I'd like to share with you today about his final mystical vision. What did Padre Pio see on his deathbed? All that coming up and more. But uh, to kick things off, a few weeks ago I did a segment on the spirituality of trees, where I talked about these, you know, certain properties of trees can provide insights about the nature of man and the truths of the faith. And I also talked about how St. Bernard of Clairvaux uh, sought solitude in creation to better understand the Creator. He was fond of saying in regard to his great insights into the scriptures, he said, my only masters were the beeches and the oaks. But I neglected to share uh, one of my favorite symbols from the Middle Ages, and that is the symbol of a tree to represent the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Okay, faith, hope, and charity are called theological virtues because they refer directly to God and because those virtues are infused into the soul right along with sanctifying grace uh, at baptism. So the virtue of faith is the virtue that leads us to believe in God and what he has revealed. The virtue of hope helps us to look for God for eternal salvation and for the means to gain it, that he is faithful to his promises. And number three, the virtue of charity moves us to love God, which is to seek to please him uh, by doing his holy will. So we love God uh, for his own sake and above all else, and our neighbor as ourselves. And the tree in the Middle Ages was a powerful symbol. In fact, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, in his Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, chose a tree as the symbol of the kings of men, right? The white tree of Gondor, you might remember. And it's an actual tree, but it's represented symbolically in their, in their, in their heraldry. Tolkien actually included an illustration that he made in his books. And you can probably call it to mind. If you've uh, seen Peter Jackson's movie, uh, you would recognize the image from the armor of the Knights of Gondor, from the... Uh, um, the tunics that Pippin and Aragorn wear in Return of the King, for example, on their shields in the, the climactic battle. And, and if you can call the image of it to mind, uh, it shows the roots of the tree, from which then proceeds the trunk, and which culminates in the branches. And in Tolkien's version of the symbol, the branches are surmounted by seven stars. There's a, little, in a semicircle above the branches. And the stars represent the fruit of the tree. So being both a medievalist and a Roman Catholic, of course, uh, it's not surprising that Professor Tolkien chose that particular image. You know, in, in medieval Catholic symbolism, the living tree considered a most appropriate visual representation of theological virtues, because just as the roots are the foundation, uh, faith is the foundational virtue. And then uh, hope is represented by the trunk that proceeds from the roots and, and uh, culminates in the branches. And then the fruit is charity. So um, 
that's why, you know, there's really no value to faith and hope unless they bear fruit in charity. That's why St. Paul says, uh, and there remain now faith, hope, and charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. That's from 1 Corinthians 13. So he's saying right now in this life, we have faith and we have hope and we have charity or love, but love is the greatest because love is the virtue that lasts forever, right? When you, when you die and go before the throne of God, you don't need faith anymore. You will have direct knowledge and you won't need hope anymore either because at, the, at, the, at your particular judgment, your hopes will either be fulfilled or they will be dashed. Love itself, only love, goes on forever. And so in Tolkien's version, the the fruit of the tree is represented by those stars above the branches, seven stars, which bring to mind the seven sacraments, but I suspect what they actually symbolize is the seven moral virtues that are opposed to the seven deadly sins. So, right, you have the, the theological virtues, and then you have these moral virtues. So humility for pride and generosity for avarice, Chastity opposed to lust, meekness opposed to anger, temperance uh, as the cure for gluttony, brotherly love for envy, and zeal for sloth. These moral virtues and the cardinal virtues of justice, fortitude, um, and prudence, and uh, oh, and he's blanking out, of course. Um, Justice, prudence, fortitude, and temperance are the cardinal virtues. This is the foundation of what the medievals called the quest for Christian perfection, what Vatican II called the universal call to holiness. You know, and you might wonder why I so often refer to medieval literature and symbolism. Well, um, I am a medievalist, and I came across, I think, a, a good answer to in, in the introduction of a book that I'm reading currently, uh, which perhaps not surprisingly was written in the 1300s uh, <laughs> in medieval Spain. The book is El Conde Lucanor, or Count Lucanor, and The Fifty Pleasant Stories. Uh, it was written by Don Manuel, who's kind of known as the Spanish Boccaccio. It is, uh, it's 50 different stories. And the way the book is, is set up, uh, this, this Count Lucanor brings up some dilemma that he's having, uh, and he asks his uh, advisor uh, to, to help him. Okay? And, and then the, he, the advisor tells a story. And then the story is followed by a, a moral in a rhyming couplet. So there's 50 these wonderful illustrations. Uh, after the invention of movable type, the uh, first edition was printed and uh, published in the year of our Lord, 1525. My English translation was done in the 1800s, but the translator in his introduction, he writes, It is indeed time that such a book, so full of the antique simplicity and wisdom, <clears throat> pardon me, should be appreciated. Like Tolkien's great work, in my opinion, the translator says, quote, though every tale in the collection illustrates some wise moral and closes with some pithy maxim for the conduct of life, there is no dogmatic teaching. And independently of any moral, each story is a real story, artistic and interesting, nay, true in the best sense of the word, true to nature and the human heart. And so it is with The Lord of the Rings, um, or Tennyson's Idols of the King, which are based on, you know, uh, the medieval stories, you know, Beowulf and the Song of Roland, 
Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, Sir, Sir Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur. Um, of course, the works of William Shakespeare, uh, a beautiful culmination of all of these ideas. You know, works of art that can tell us more about ourselves than mere history. And that sometimes can tell us more about our relationship with God than, uh, you know, some dry work of theology. Final comment, there's one more kind of obscure reference, although a modern one that came to mind uh, regarding the, the trees and their symbolism. Uh, after I did that spirituality of trees segment, and that's something that Pope St. Paul VI said after the introduction of the New Order of the Mass. And you may have never heard this before. What he said was, liturgy is like a strong tree whose beauty is derived from the continuous renewal of its leaves, but whose strength comes from the old trunk with solid roots in the ground. Now we're going to be talking a little later about how to properly interpret the Second Vatican Council. And this is a good example you know, you may not be surprised to learn that I prefer the extraordinary form of the Mass, but I tell you, if it were not for liturgical abuse, uh, if the typical diocesan celebration of the Novus Ordo Missae actually followed the general instruction of the Roman Missal and was celebrated according to the, the norms of Redemptionis Sacramentum, I would have never sought out the old liturgy in the first place. And I know it can be done because I've seen it done. Right? That's, that's the, the axiom in physics that if something has happened, that means it can happen. Visited parishes around the country that are doing it right. And, and many of them, and of course their, their ranks are swelling, many have the extraordinary form as well as the ordinary form, but, but many are strictly Novus Ordo parishes that are simply practicing Catholicism according to the best-kept secret of Vatican II which is what we're going to be talking about next. You know, also, I've been, I've been hosting No Nonsense Catholicism, No Nonsense Catholic, for several months now. And I know we have new listeners all the time, so I want to just take a minute and remind you about what I mean by that term, No Nonsense Catholic. There's a lot of confusion in the Church today, uh, mostly the fault of what Bishop Sheen called but Catholics. Uh, you know, I'm Catholic, but I'm pro-choice. I'm Catholic, but I don't believe anybody goes to hell. I'm Catholic, but I think the church should ordain women. You know, just fill in the blank. Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, exemplars of but Catholicism. And sadly, but Catholics can be found amongst uh, prominent clergy and religious, as well as the laity. There's no shortage of those who think that it's possible to be a good Catholic while rejecting some truth or truths of the faith, or who believes that the, the truths of the faith are, are subject to change without notice. And faithful Catholics need to understand that that's nonsense. Regardless who's the source, regardless whether it's a powerful politician or a popular priest, there's no expiration date on the truth. Scripture says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and whoever breaks one commandment is guilty of breaking them all. Our Lord himself said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. If you remain in my word, you'll be my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. He is the only way, not the preferred way, not the, uh, not the best way, not just a way, but the way. And that is no nonsense. All right, coming back uh, with the best-kept secret of Vatican II right after these messages. Stay with us here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Welcome back. No Nonsense Catholic, uh, Matthew Arnold here. Uh, your source, uh, internet source for Keep It Simple Catholicism. There is a crisis in the church, and Vatican II is the elephant in the room. How so, pray tell, you ask? And the answer is that the 21st Ecumenical Council of the Church was unique in the history of ecumenical councils, and novelty always spells trouble for the church. I want to take a minute. Consider the first seven ecumenical councils. The first one was the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. They condemned Arianism, proclaimed that the divine word, God the Son, was consubstantial with the Father and drew up the original Nicene Creed. And then a few years later, in 381 AD, was the Council of Constantinople, which condemned the Macedonians. The Macedonians denied the divinity and consubstantiality of the Holy Spirit. And that council published the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, which is the one that we know as the Creed, you know, the Nicene Creed today, the one that which Catholics uh, recite this day at every Sunday Mass. The third council was the Council of Ephesus in 431, which condemned Nestorianism. Nestorius denied that Mary was the mother of God. Jesus, yes, God, no. Uh, the, the mother only of his human nature. No, Christ is one person. Mary is Theotokos, God-bearer, right? Uh, Jesus is God. Mary is the mother of Jesus. Ergo, Mary is the mother of God. Uh, the fourth council was the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, which condemned monophysitism and defined the hypostatic union, that there are two perfect natures in Christ, a divine nature and a human nature. The fifth council was the second Constantinople in 553, which condemned the writing of three theologians who were suspected of Nestorianism. Uh, rearing its ugly head again. The sixth in was uh, Constantinople III in 680, which condemned monothelitism. Not to be confused with monophysitism, monothelitism denied the existence of two wills in Christ. The council affirmed that there are in Christ both a human will and a divine will, which we see illustrated when our Lord prays uh, in the agony of his, or the garden of his agony. He said, Father, if it be thy will, let this chalice pass from me. Yet, not my will, but thine be done. And then the seventh ecumenical council was the Council of Nicaea II in 787 AD, which condemned the iconoclast and defines, authorizes, and regulates the legitimate use of images in Christian worship. So these are not all of the topics that were covered in these councils, but these are the, the, the important dogmatic ones uh, for which they are famous. Uh, weighty theological issues that were hotly debated. They crafted definitions that cleared up confusion and stood the test of time, right? All that we, we pray the Nicene Creed, recite that creed to this very day at Mass. The decisions of these councils are indispensable to Catholicism because they directly impact the belief and therefore the salvation of every believer. Vatican II, though, was different. And there was a recent piece in a Crisis magazine called Vatican II, a Lawyer's Perspective, by one James Kalb. He maintains that unlike the previous ecumenical councils, quote, the majority or the major documents of Vatican II don't give us much that's concrete. They enact no canons, pronounce no anathemas, decide no particular cases, and adopt no new doctrinal definitions. 
Instead, they present lengthy discussions of the church and its relation to the world that are sometimes eloquent and sometimes confusing. Now, commenting on that article is a, a fellow Catholic attorney by the name of Chris Ferrara, who said, This council, unlike any before it, wanted to say a lot of things about a lot of subjects in the form of commentaries on this or that, rather than simple declarative statements of what the church teaches and what the faithful must hold, which was the subject matter of every ecumenical council before Vatican II. Consequently, Kalb observes the documents of this unique council are, quote, twice as long as the first seven ecumenical councils put together. And that bears repeating, because we just went through the crucial teachings of those first seven ecumenical councils. Not the only teachings, but just the the main historic uh, dogmatic ones for which they're known. And yet the documents of Vatican II are twice as long as all the documents of all those church councils combined. Yet Vatican II, uh, the the documents contain no decrees, no canons, no anathemas, no due doctrinal definitions. Kalb says even when the documents deal with something fairly concrete, like the reform of the liturgy or religious life, they leave the specifics to future decisions. He says, even where the council documents venture into language that might appear binding in some way, he says, quote, it's not always clear what they bind us to. The council tells us that people have the right to religious freedom within due limits, but what limits are due? The council shows us that we can say favorable things about the modern age and other religions. That's true, but we can also say not so favorable things. And the prudence of one statement or another isn't something on which definitive guidance is even possible. The result of all this is that 50 plus years after the close of Vatican II, he says, quote, we still have no accepted understanding of what it did. Instead, we have those who support a hermeneutic of continuity and those who support a hermeneutic of rupture, with the hermeneutic of rupture divided between those who reject the traditional church and those who reject the council. And more on that later. <clears throat> Pardon me, but for the sake of clarity, an hermeneutic is the interpretive principle that you apply to something. In this case, uh, the the interpretation of the Second Vatican Council as part of the ongoing tradition of the Church, for good or ill, uh, or, or, I mean, I should say, or for good or ill, a clean break with Catholic tradition. I would venture to suggest that most of those Catholics who support the hermeneutic of rupture on either side, whether they consider that rupture a good thing or a bad thing, uh, they've very likely not read the 16 documents of Vatican II for themselves. And, And furthermore, I can understand why, because it's not light reading. Some parts of those documents are quite dense. But to be fair, some parts of the documents of the Council of Trent are dense. Some parts of the syllabus of errors are dense. Scripture is dense. To be sure, uh, history, pardon me, I got a little, I'm a little clumped there. Uh, history, as I was saying, um, records that not all the decrees of the previous 20 ecumenical councils were met with docility. Sometimes they were resisted and, and hotly resisted. Heretics don't typically just go away, you know. They wouldn't be heretics to begin with if, you know, they were, they were docile to the authority of the church. However, heresy, does, uh, history rather, does not admit of any post-conciliar period after Trent or Nicaea or Vatican I. Vat- uh, history does not record any imposition of the spirit of Trent or the spirit of Second Lateran, okay, etc., etc. 
The current depth of confusion regarding the teaching of an ecumenical council is particular. It's unique to Vatican II. And, but, but why? What is responsible for this unique situation? Well, I've, I've always maintained it's precisely because Vatican II has no decrees or anathemas. Therefore, it provides no interpretational key. It was meant to be a pastoral council by design. It, having no, you know, defined no new doctrines or canons, you know, canons and anathemas seemed unnecessary. The most remarkable, albeit little-known fact of Vatican II is this. This is what I call the best-kept secret of Vatican II. Hold on to your hats. It's simply this. The documents of Vatican II do not actually require a Catholic to believe or do a single thing he was not obliged to believe or do before the Council. In other words, Vatican II did not change the Catholic faith. I mean, that's a common assertion uh, uh, that, 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 that the faith has changed. You know, we, we talk about these polls that they take. 70% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. But the teaching hasn't changed. 77% of, of Catholic Democrats um, are in favor of legal abortion. Well, th- th- that's not what the Church teaches. You know, uh, let's see, what else? Uh, you know, I, I met a deacon once, a permanent deacon, who told me that he did not believe in the doctrine of purgatory. Okay, so all well and good. You can reject the Eucharist. You can be pro-abortion. You can, you can reject purgatory or some other uh, infallible doctrine of the Church. You just can't do those things and be Catholic, <laughs> okay? Because there's no expiration date on the truth. Those, those teachings do not change. And, and it's very common these days to, to hear people say that the cause of the confusion, this post-conciliar confusion, stems from the fact that the 16 documents of Vatican II are ambiguous. Uh, Archbishop Vigano is, just came out and said that same thing. He says that, that we should just abandon Vatican II because of the ambiguity of the documents. And he's only the, the latest in a very long list of critics to make that same claim. And to be honest, he's coming late to the game by about 50 years. But however common this claim of ambiguity might be, I would suggest that it's kind of simplistic uh, in point of fact, there's much in the documents of Vatican II that is both clear and clearly traditional. That's why I, I have a segment, and I, I demonstrate that uh, again and again on this program, the segment that we call, Will a Real Vatican II Please Stand Up? But if it's not ambiguity, why, why so much difficulty interpretation? You know, Bishop Robert Barron, among many others, has pointed out that there were two main Uh, kind of theological currents among the fathers of the Second Vatican Council. And I think it's well to remember that the fathers of the council were human beings. And like most, you know, big groups like that, probably 20% of them did 80% of the work, right? That's the 80-20 rule. So those two dominant uh, currents were very likely represented by relatively small but vocal minorities, and so the first current, which, I mean, if you've studied the matter at all, you'll be familiar with this term. It's, it's known by the Italian term aggiornamento, which means <clears throat> updating. And the other approach is known by a French word, which is ressourcement, or a return to the sources. Now, to put the best possible spin on aggiornamento is to take the position of St. John the Twenty-Third, who said essentially that the church 
after the horrific events of the first half of the 20th century, needed to restate the truths of the deposit of faith in language that is more readily understood by people today, although the today in question was the early 60s. So not to update in the sense of changing the teachings, you know, in, in some attempt to make them more relevant, which of course would go against the infallible teaching of Trent and Vatican I and, and the whole of uh, the constant tradition of the Church, but uh, rather to update a, the way that the teachings were presented. Hence, Vatican II was meant to be, in Pope St. John XXIII's own words, a pastoral council. So that's, you know, the true aggiornamento. Uh, Ressourcement, on the other hand, is about going back to the sources, that is, to the Bible and patristics, to the fathers of the Church, in order to inform our present situation. And there's nothing wrong with that. Common even among the most uh, conservative of Catholic theologians, like Scott Hahn, for example, the old saying goes, uh, the stream runs clearer closer to the source. But there's a conflict. And we'll talk about that when we come back with more No-Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stick with us, and we will be right back. Okay, welcome back. Talking about aggiornamento and ressourcement. Aggiornamento meaning updating, and these are currents uh, that were uh, um, formative at Vatican II. Aggiornamento meaning updating, but properly updating the way the truths are presented, not changing the truths. And um, ressourcement, a return to the sources, but not antiquarianism, or, pardon me, archaeologism. <clears throat> Sorry, tough to lose your voice when you're doing a show by yourself. Uh, yeah, ressourcement is not antiquarianism or archaeologism, which is a heresy identified by Pope Pius XII as um, the false notion that ancient teachings or ancient customs are superior <clears throat> simply because they're ancient without taking into account the organic development of the Church's understanding of the truth contained in the deposit of faith. That's unacceptable. And for Pius XII, that would, uh, that would apply even to liturgical customs. And he gave specific examples, um, turning the priest around to face the congregation, celebrating the Mass entirely in the vernacular, uh, or on an altar that looks like a table, or distributing Holy Communion in the hand. All of these were being advocated on the dubious claim that that's how they did it in the early church. But if that were true, and I don't know that it necessarily is, but if that were true, it still remains that all of those practices were subsequently abandoned universally in the church, both east and west, for more than a thousand years. And there, you know, there must have been a reason. <clears throat> and Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is the Vatican II document on the liturgy, says that any change in the liturgy must be organic and it must proceed from some clear necessity, that is, from some objective need. And it's difficult to see how any of these changes, which are all part and parcel of the Novus Ordo today, how any of them qualify. In any case, it's patently false to say that they were done by mandate of the council. Okay, so aggiornamento and resource small. Clearly, these two currents are at odds. 
you know, it, it's hard to uh, return to the sources while you're updating. But uh, back to our, our central question, are the documents ambiguous? Well, Dr. Alan Schreck, whom I've met personally, a professor of theology, and uh, I, I've shared the podium with him, he has suggested that what's perceived as ambiguity in the documents of Vatican II is due to the presence of the two opposing currents, a giornamento and resourcement, in the same documents, which documents ultimately represent an attempted detente between the two approaches. So I suspect this compromise is one of the reasons that the documents are so long. Now, the discussion of any topic as big as an ecumenical council runs the risk of oversimplification. But one might say that the prolixity, the, the, the verbosity, the wordiness of the documents of Vatican II stems from the fact that many of those 16 documents are really two different documents. And this may account for the experience of so many ordinary Catholics uh, for whom the experience of trying to read those documents uh, find them with the, the, the words uh, figuratively swimming on the page, as they say. So... Pardon me. The concrete interpretation of the documents of Vatican II was left to those responsible for the implementation of the documents. There's a veritable avalanche of post-conciliar instructions prepared by various committees. Uh, you know, and so you've got uh, also the way the content of those instructions was presented to the public, which of course involves the press, and the press is, interprets things through their own lens of the secular categories of, of liberal and conservative or progressive versus regressive, and that is what ultimately determined which current would be dominant. And as is readily apparent, updating, in the worst sense of the word, won the day. But that's only one side of the, of the hermeneutic of rupture. The other camp is represented by the, the radical traditionalists who believe that Vatican II broke with the tradition of the Church and so reject the Council. Now, this would now include Archbishop Viganò, But long before he entered the fray, uh, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger addressed this clash between the two manifestations of the hermeneutic of rupture back in 1988. And he said, it is necessary, it's a necessary task to defend the Second Vatican Council as valid and as binding upon the Church. But, he said, certainly there's a mentality of narrow views that isolate Vatican II and which has provoked the traditionalist opposition. There are many accounts of it which give the impression that from Vatican II onward, everything's been changed, that what preceded it has no value, or at best has value only in light of Vatican II. He said that, that this council has not been treated as a part of the entire living tradition of the Church, but, quote, an end of tradition, a new start from zero. But he said the truth is that this particular council defined no dogma at all, and deliberately chose to remain on a modest level as a merely pastoral council. And yet many treat it as though it had made itself into a sort of super dogma, which takes away the importance of all the rest. And he said that idea is made stronger by things that are now happening, and he cites that which was previously considered the most holy. Right? The form in which the liturgy had been passed down in the Roman Church is now, the traditional Latin Mass, he says, is now suddenly uh, uh, appears to be the most forbidden of things, the one thing that can be safely prohibited. It's intolerable to criticize decisions that have been made since the Council. But on the other hand, if men question ancient rules or even the truths of the faith, the great truths of the faith, 
the corporal virginity of Mary, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the immortality of the soul. He says nobody complains. Or if they do, it's with the greatest of moderation. I myself, he said, when I was a professor, have seen how the very same bishop who before the council had fired a teacher who was really irreproachable uh, over uh, for a certain crudeness of speech was not prepared after the council to dismiss a professor who openly denied fundamental truths of the faith. Well, you can see the problem. All this, he says, leads a great number of people to ask themselves if the church of today is really the same as of yesterday or if they've changed it for something else without telling anyone. In the spiritual movements of the post-conciliar era, he said there is not the slightest doubt that frequently there has been an obliviousness, even a suppression of the issue of truth. And here, perhaps, we confront the crucial problem for theology and for pastoral work today. The idea that all religions are only symbols of what is ultimately incomprehensible has already penetrated into liturgical practice. When things get to this point, faith is left behind, because faith really consists in the fact that I am committing myself to the truth. So in this matter also, there is every motive to return to the right path. Reminded of C.S. Lewis, he said, we all want progress, but when you're going in the wrong direction, the man who's most correct, uh, most progressive is the first one that turns back. <clears throat> and it was after that he became Pope that Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, when he became Pope Benedict XVI, coined the terms hermeneutic of rupture and hermeneutic of continuity. And it was in an address that he gave in, in 2005 uh, in the section that he... Uh, uh, commented on the 40th anniversary of the close of Vatican II. Vatican II closed in 65, so he's writing in 2005, 15 years ago. What has been the result of the council, he asked. Was it well received? What in the acceptance of the council was good and what was inadequate or mistaken? What still remains to be done? Why has the implementation of the council in large parts of the church thus far been so difficult? I think it's staggering that 40 years after a council... They're still answering those questions. There still is an, accept, an accepted uh, uh, understanding of the council. And he answers, he says, it all depends on the correct interpretation of the council, or as we would say, on its proper hermeneutics, the correct key to its interpretation and application. The problems in its implementation arose from two contrary hermeneutics. One caused confusion, the other silently, but more and more visibly, bore and is bearing fruit. <clears throat> In a word, he says, it would be necessary not to follow the text of the council. Uh, oh, no. Uh, In a word. Now, he, he's talking about the, uh, the interpretation that caused confusion, uh, the hermeneutic of rupture. He says that it would be necessary not to follow the text of the council, but its spirit. In this way, obviously, a vast margin was left open for the question of how that spirit should be defined, and room was consequently made for every whim. This is his description of the, of the mischief that was caused by the notorious spirit of Vatican II. On the one hand, he says, there's an interpretation I would call a hermeneutic of discontinuity and rupture. It has frequently availed itself of the sympathies of the mass media and also of one trend of modern theology, which is a progressive theology. On the other, there is the hermeneutic of renewal in the continuity of the one church which the Lord has given to us. 
subsequently simply known as the hermeneutic of continuity. He says the church is a subject which increases in time and develops, yet always remains the same. The hermeneutic of discontinuity risks ending in a split between the preconciliar church and the postconciliar church. It asserts that the texts of the council as such do not yet express the true spirit of the council. It claims that they are the result of compromises in which to reach unanimity, in other words, to get the 80% of the fathers to sign off. It was found necessary to keep and reconfirm many old things that are now pointless. Right? That would be the parts of the documents that I describe as clear and clearly traditional. However, the true spirit of the council is not to be found in these compromises, but instead in the impulses toward the new that are contained in the text. These innovations alone were supposed to represent the true spirit of council, and starting from and in conformity with them, it would be possible to move ahead, precisely because the text would only imperfectly reflect the true spirit of the council and its newness. It would be necessary to go courageously beyond the text and make room for the newness in which the council's deepest intention would be expressed, even if it were still vague. Now, you can see how that's a complete recipe for disaster. And we've seen it play out in the last half century. And he goes on to say that the nature of the council as such is therefore basically misunderstood. And there's the key. He says the spirit of Vatican II people don't get it. They don't merely misunderstand the second Vatican council. They misunderstand the nature of an ecumenical council in the first place. And that's where we're going to pick up when we return uh, right here on No Nonsense Catholic. Lots more coming up including Padre Pio's final mystical vision, right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. (coughs) Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Wallen, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We're talking about Pope Benedict XVI and the proper interpretation of the Second Vatican Council. He said there is a hermeneutic of rupture and discontinuity. Those people who think that um, that uh, you can with impunity uh, say that you, you don't need to follow the Council and its texts because those were compromised with this old way of thinking. You have to uh, engage the spirit of Vatican II and courageously go beyond the texts to make room for the newness in which the council's deepest intention would be expressed, even if it's only expressed vaguely. Obviously a recipe for disaster. And then he says that uh, the nature of a council as such is basically misunderstood. Not just the Vatican II council, but but the, the, the nature of an ecumenical council period. He says in this way it's considered as a sort of constituent that eliminates an old constitution and creates a new one. But that would require a mandate. He said that the fathers had no such mandate. No one was ever given them, nor could anyone have given them one, because the essential constitution of the church comes from the Lord and was given to us that we might attain eternal life. So he puts his finger right on it. But, Pope Benedict says, this false hermeneutic of rupture is countered by the hermeneutic of continuity, as it was presented first by Pope St. John XXIII right right at the opening of the Second Vatican Council. John XXIII, uh, with the following words, unequivocally expressed the hermeneutic of continuity. He said, the Council wishes to, and I'm quoting, transmit the doctrine 
pure and integral, without any attenuation, attenuation or distortion. So, no changes, no misinterpretations. He goes on, Our duty is not only to guard this precious treasure, as if we were concerned only with antiquity, but to dedicate ourselves with an earnest will and without fear to that work which our era demands of us. Right? This, this era uh, after the, the first half of the 20th century where we saw worldwide depression and not one but two global wars. It's necessary, he said, that adherence to all the teaching of the church in its entirety and preciseness be presented in faithful and perfect conformity to the authentic doctrine, which, however, should be studied and expounded through the methods of research and through the literary forms of modern thought. The substance of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of faith is one thing, the way in which it is presented is another, but retaining the same meaning and message. Pope Benedict said the only way that Vatican II can be made plausible is to present it as it is, one part of the unbroken, the unique tradition of the Church and her faith. Now let's look at that. Let's take that apart. The one way, that is the only way, that Vatican II can be made plausible, that is, credible, believable, reasonable, acceptable. The only way is to present it as it is, is to present it as one part of the unbroken, unique tradition of the Church and of her faith. Vatican II happened, and we have to deal with the reality of the Council, the real Council, not the spirit of the Council, the actual Council. And the way to do that is to interpret Vatican II with the hermeneutic of continuity, meaning to interpret the actual words of the documents in accordance with the constant tradition of the Church, and not to reinterpret the tradition of the Church in light of Vatican II, or its dubious spirit. The only way to do that is to begin by realizing the best-kept secret of Vatican II, which is simply that the documents of the Second Vatican Council do not actually oblige, that is, do not require, force, compel, obligate, They do not oblige a Catholic to believe or do a single thing that he was not obliged to believe or do before the Council. The Second Vatican Council did not change the Catholic faith. Now, admittedly, there has been a great amount of change de facto in the uh, belief and practice of the Church on account of Vatican II. But nothing has changed de jure, The deposit of faith is intact, and it must be held whole and entire. No buts, in other words. And those parishes, those schools, those religious communities that do so, who hold the faith and and faithfully and reverently celebrate the liturgy and encourage confession and traditional devotions, those communities are flourishing. They're the, the, the only parts of the church that are flourishing, only those parts that promote, you know, this traditional Catholicism, which is to say Catholicism, what I call no-nonsense Catholicism, they alone are the sectors of the church that are growing instead of shrinking. 
that are putting into practice the hermeneutic of continuity. That's the only way forward. I was talking about what constitutes a no-nonsense Catholic. In brief, it doesn't matter which liturgy you prefer. It doesn't matter whether you say Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. It doesn't matter whether or not you include the luminous mysteries when you pray the rosary or whether you read the New American Bible or the Dewey Reams. So long as you hold the Catholic faith whole and entire, simply put, a no-nonsense Catholic is one who can say the act of faith and mean it. Oh my God, I firmly believe that you are one God in three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe that your divine Son became man and died for our sins, and that he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe these and all the truths which the Holy Catholic Church believes and teaches because you have revealed them who can neither deceive nor be deceived. Amen. And that is no nonsense. Okay, today, the 23rd of September, is the feast day of St. Pius of Pietrocina, better known as Padre Pio. A few years ago, they had the 100th anniversary of his reception of the stigmata. He bore the wounds of Christ mystically in his body. And it was 50 years after his ordination. Big celebration there at San Giovanni Rotondo. The folks at Augustine Institute uh, engaged me to put together a story of his life. And it was made a CD of the month uh, for Lighthouse Catholic Media. Maybe you heard it. Uh, it was something that was, uh, was a great labor of love for me because Padre Pio was one of the greatest saints uh, in the church, one, certainly one of the greatest of the 20th century, devoted priest, uh, confessor, miracle worker, uh, uh, demon fighter. He touched so many people. 100,000 people attended his funeral, and, and a huge amount of people attended his canonization, including our own uh, uh, Terry Barber and his wife and, and their family. But I, I learned so many things about Padre Pio, when I was doing that uh, presentation about as many miracles, about uh, as many healings, and about the, the testimony of so many people from around the world. But I, I just recently, I was uh, looking for something to share on his feast day, and I ran across this item uh, about the mystical vision that he had just moments before his death, his final mystical vision right, of this, this amazing saint. Right, he barely made it through his last Mass on September the 22nd, 1968. 81 years old. Um, he collapsed almost, leaving the church. And uh, his brothers helped him to his bed. Uh, after midnight on the 23rd, right, so the, it's the 23rd, he made his final confession, right, you see the last rites. He renewed his Franciscan vows. He was so weak he could barely speak. He couldn't even pray the rosary, which he had done so many countless times uh, throughout his life, but but he held on to his rosary beads and he, he repeated the words Jesus and Mary, Jesus, Maria, clutching his rosary over and over. <clears throat> and then suddenly around 2.30 a.m., he, he rallied, he perked up, which is not unusual for people who are, are, are nearing death. And, and this saint, who had had so many uh, supernatural experiences throughout his life, it, it uh, seemed to those who were there as though he were seeing something right there in the room. Although nobody else, you know, saw anything. But he said, I see two mothers. And then he whispered the word, Maria. And died. 
his last mystical vision. What exactly did he see? Now, regarding the two mothers, there's, you know, there's really only a few um, reasonable possibilities. Some people have suggested the church, because the church is our mother. Um, I don't really see that, you know, it's not clear that how that would be manifested in a mystical vision. Uh, I ask myself what I would hope to see on my deathbed. You know, and this is only speculation, but I suspect that he saw his spiritual mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the mother of us all, mother of God, and his own biological mother, who he loved so much and to whom he was devoted. You know, it might seem obvious to this, this priest who said so many countless rosaries that his last word, Maria, would refer to the Blessed Virgin Mary. You know, that saint who, who had kept repeating her name and our Lord's name as he clutched his rosary beads in his final hours. But it's well to remember that his own mother was also named Maria. And he may have been referring to her. And again, I, I picture my own death and I ask myself, what would I like my final vision on this earth to be? And it's, you know, what Padre Pio, I expect, experienced that he saw the, the, the person that Jesus loved the most, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the person that he loved the most on this earth, which, you know, for him was his own mother, his biological mother, his spiritual mother, there greeting him to welcome him and to accompany him with open arms into the presence of our Lord. St. Augustine said that if we hold the faith, if we believe well, we will live well. He says, if we live well, we will die well. And if we die well, then all will be well. And that, I think, is the, is the lesson of the final mystical vision of St. Padre Pio, a man whose life was so full of supernatural happenings that he would finish his earthly life with a mystical vision that was not for anyone else, but just for him. May we all have as happy a death as St. Pius of Pietrelcina. Thanks for listening. I love you guys. Uh, thank you for your support. Please, uh, if you don't have the app, download the app. You can go to Virgin Most Powerful, vmpr.org. Find out all about all of the ministries here. Um, just keep listening. Keep supporting us. Keep praying for us, please. That's the one thing that I would ask uh, most sincerely of all of the requests that we make here. Just please pray for us because that is the, the, the thing that really keeps us going, the abundant help that we all require. And we'll pray for you too. In the meantime, may God richly bless you and your family. And I look forward to being with you next week right here on No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.